Happy Friday, folks. Senior Editor Mackenzie Taylor here on the Texans Weekly Roundup Podcast. This week, our team discusses Austin considering a universal basic income program, revelations about the state-funded Liberty Institute at UT, state officials debating whether the border crisis counts as an invasion, Wendy Davis filing a lawsuit against the heartbeat bill, home appraisals in the Austin area skyrocketing, arrests of illegal immigrants at the border processed under Title 42, the latest in campaign fundraising numbers, Dallas County's judge using taxpayer dollars in a legal battle with Governor Abbott, and a few campaign updates as the runoff elections approach. If you have questions for our team, DM us on Twitter or email us at editor at thetexan.news. We'd love to answer your questions on our podcast. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. Howdy folks, Mackenzie Taylor here with Brad Johnson, Daniel Friend, Isaiah Mitchell, and Hayden Sparks. We're all here on another episode of the Weekly Roundup Podcast. We were just talking about how always when we start recording, we record on Thursdays, the podcast is published on Fridays, how we all get a little hungry, right, as we're starting to record. Mm-hmm. So I think about lunch almost the entire well, time. Isaiah doesn't eating. get hungry because he eats lunch at 10. Yeah, but I'm starting to get to that point where I want to eat lunch at like 10. Okay. Yeah. Why not? Exactly. This is America. <laughs> but Isaiah eats like, you know, brisket at 10 a.m. Honestly, if I had brisket at 10 a.m., I would eat it too. So I can't <laughs> what are you going to wait for? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe lunch. That's just my thought. But I am getting, I, I, I am getting hungry earlier. So I have more empathy for Isaiah nowadays. There you go. I have um, pesto pasta waiting for me for lunch. You have what kind of pasta? Sounds dangerous. Pesto pasta. I've never heard of this. Is it good? Like just pesto. It's really, it's good. You know what pesto is? Because I literally talked about I that yesterday. Oh, wait, what? What'd you say? Didn't I just talk about pesto pasta yesterday? Is that why you made it? No, I made it on uh, Tuesday night. Oh, okay. Yeah. But it's yummy and that's what I will be having for lunch. I will think about it throughout the rest of this recording. On that note... Not on that note at all. Brad, let's talk about the city of Austin. Um, the city of Austin had another very controversial spending item on its council agenda. Um, tell us about it. So today being Thursday, the Austin City Council has an item on its lengthy agenda that um, would establish a pilot universal basic income program. Um, basically, universal basic income is just a set amount of money that the government gives people every month. And... Uh, this is, uh, like I said, a pilot program. So if it's passed, if it's approved, it would pay a thousand dollars per month to 85 families for a year. And the total contract is worth $1.18 million. Most of that would be taken up by the benefits that would be doled out. Um, then with a service fee for the vendor, um, who is up together, which is an organization that kind of organizes UBI like programs across the country. And since um, this is at first a pilot program, the city officials intend, um, at least those in support of it, intend it to grow into a broader UBI program down the road. What that would entail, they don't know, but um, that's the intention. Got it. Where does this uh, stand at the moment? So they're currently in their Thursday meeting as we record this. Uh, on Wednesday, there was some pushback building um, among some council members and four specifically that said uh, that called for it to be postponed for a later council meeting. And those four were Mackenzie Kelly, 
Cheeto Vela, who replaced uh, Greg Kassar, uh, Leslie Poole, and Ann Kitchen. And so um, I, when I checked before we recorded this morning, it got moved to an executive session. So that's not something that you would be able to watch if you tune into the council meeting. But um, usually when that much opposition, or at least opposition to considering it today, bubbles up, it will get postponed, just like another item did earlier this month, the um, uh, $15 million COVID PR contract that we yeah. talked about that got moved to actually today. So uh, we'll see what they do on that item as well. But, um, you know, by the time this podcast comes out, we'll know whether the um, the UBI program got pushed or not. So Very good. You mentioned Mackenzie Kelly. It reminded me of a time I was at an event. I was wearing my name tag. Someone came over to me and congratulated me on a fellowship that I had received thinking I was Mackenzie Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> and she, she knows me. Like This is a person who knows me, but I think she read Mackenzie Kelly's name on the announcement and just you know, transposed our last names mm. and thought I had been the one to receive it. But well, congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's I was about to say, did you go with it? Did you just like, thank you. I, I, yeah, I love serving my constituents. Well, for a second, I thought I'd been awarded a fellowship. I didn't know idea I had <laughs> set out to, you know, procure, but that was not the case at all. Anyway, there that's my McKinsey Kelly story. Okay. Isaiah, I want to, um, well, Brad, thank you for that. I've almost forgot to thank you for your wonderful reporting. Bradley. I'm so sorry. Doing, the thing I'm obligated to do. <laughs> um, Isaiah, I do want to give you props this week. You published a story. Um, and that's it. I published that's a it. story. You published <laughs> a story. <laughs> there are more coming down the pipe. But uh, it's an incredible story about the Liberty Institute kind of breaking this um, wide open, talking about what has gone on since the legislature approved this program at UT. But remind us first what the Liberty Institute is supposed to be, what it will basically just give us a rundown of what it what it was set out to be uh you told me to be pithy earlier but i will say that's a good <laughs> question because there's been a lot of debate about the identity of the institute and what it's meant to be it was originally born in faculty offices there's a professor at ut when he's still there named carlos carvalho statistics professor who worked with some others uh, including other faculty and other supporters of something they've already got there called the salem uh, center for policy events which is already like kind of right-leaning, focused on supply-side economics. Yeah. And he came up with this idea for an institute at UT that would be kind of like the Hoover Institution, where it's a home for heterodox academics who are not in line with the prevailing, mostly left-wing ideology at UT. And, um, but with the Liberty Institute, the idea was that it would have degree programs and classes and up to 15 independently hired tenured-track professors they would be creating this this programming. Um, it was very publicly pushed by Dan Patrick during the session, and it got added to the budget. They allotted it uh, $6 million, so $3 million for each year in the biennium, since that's how you know, the Texas budget yeah. works. But um, so yeah, biennium so mean two years, essentially, when the legislature yes. meets, yes. Yeah, and uh, so they pushed that through uh, with a lot of help from Dan Patrick, got some funding. Uh, I mentioned that there was some dispute over what the Institute was meant to be, um, especially you see this in the media over like, you know, what it is and, and what it's meant to accomplish. Dan Patrick uh, touted it as an antidote to what he called the poison of critical race theory in the minds of young students. And he says, we banned it in publicly funded K-12 and we'll ban it in publicly funded higher ed. That's why we created the Liberty Institute at UT. That's something that he wrote in the social media post. So. Got it. So what's the status of this project now? 
Um, according to people involved in it, including Carvalho and another professor who worked on, Dan Lowry, and some others, uh, it is it is stalled. Um, there was a timeline included in the initial draft proposal, which we have included in the article. Very important to look at. And um, that timeline is just not being met at this point. Um, I asked Carvalho specifically about what's going on with the project. And for one, he, the creator of the project, uh, has been sidelined. He was removed from the committee steering it. And um, so he's no longer officially involved with the ongoing creation of this institute. What he really is complaining about, though, is that um, he says that independent hiring, in his opinion, was very necessary for the success of the project because the way he sees it, without the ability for the people that were invested in the creation of the Institute, controlling the hiring practices of the Institute, uh, the money will go to, the, will go through existing departments who will decide who is hired. And um, that he says will create, it will maintain the intellectual imbalance that the university already has on, on campus. Right. So on the other side of the debate, University of Texas J, uh, President Jay Hartzell has said in faculty council meetings that um, a lack of independent hiring is actually, that actually conforms with the way that they run centers and institutes at UT already. He says that they generally don't appoint tenured faculty. So the, the administration's position is that, you know, taking away what was in the original proposal to have independent hiring is actually just, you know, kind of playing by existing rules for the institute. But Carvalho, uh, Richard Lowry, who worked on it with this project, both say that without the ability to hire f staff independently, um, something else to add that this, they're also going to go through um, diversity, equity, and inclusion office. They have a, a big seat at the helm of like who gets hired according to current proposals for hiring for this institute. But without independent hiring, um, you know, as I, as I said before, the existing administration and system of UT is going to maintain that same pattern yeah. at the Institute, according to the creators of the project. Another little detail is that um, one administration leader specifically who has a leading seat at the helm of the project is Richard Flores, who's a professor in the Mexican-American Studies Department. Uh, and Flores is a critical theorist, actually. Uh, critical theory is a big part of his academic publishing you know, corpus. So a critical theorist has a major seat at the helm of this project that is in a very deep and ideological level opposed yeah. to a lot of the ideas that are very fundamental to critical theory, which is interesting. Meanwhile, Dan Patrick, who had been you know boasting about the, the success of the project and, and its possibilities during the session a little bit afterward, um, according to Corvallo and Lowry, is not is not involved at all. Yeah. Um, they gave somewhat disputing accounts over how much they believe he knows. His office does not respond to me for comment. Flores did not respond to me for comment. Um, but he is kind of, he, he pivoted to a new position that that's a whole nother article uh, with regards to like how to address in his terms what he sees as a problem with CRT in the university. Yeah. But um, he's no longer really involved with this project now. Wow. So, that's so fascinating. So then there's another player as well. Um, we've seen a lot of Twitter action, Facebook, you know, even there were some news articles written about the potential new head of the Liberty Institute and where he would be tapped from. Talk to us a little bit about him. Yeah. So Justin Dyer is, uh, from what we're seeing in media coverage of what I was told by professors, is uh, likely the front runner 
that the administration has eyed to lead the institute. So Justin Dyer uh, has built, he's, he's done similar type projects in the same political vein at the University of Missouri where he'd be coming from. And um, Carvalho and Lowry give, again, here's like where it's just somewhat conflicting theories on how the search culminated in Dyer. Uh, Carvalho is mainly disappointed, he said, because he and the other professors who were infested in creating the project or originally say that they had approached staff at other elite institutions like the University of Chicago, Stanford, and other places, other top universities, whose funding and research is more on par with the activity and funding that you see at UT. And so um, he said that he wishes Dyer all the best if he's ultimately picked, but feels that the search was done hastily. And he says he wasn't sure why, why it was done this way, um, because for one, as I said, uh, the people initially invested in creating the project had actually approached others about it. And two, um, the University of Missouri is just simply like by the numbers alone, um, not an institution on par with UT in terms of funding and research activity. Yeah. And so that was that was Carvalho's main concern. It's the depth but, of the talent pool, essentially. Yes. Yeah. And so he, th he believes that like UT could have aimed for top talent from like other existing academics that are on that same level. And uh, Larry had some other theories that are included in the article in, in somewhat greater detail um, that Dyer has existing friendships with the remaining donors who are on the committee or the remaining higher ups on the committee that are steering the Institute at this time. And that the application process was not blasted out nationwide as they said it would be, but um, really rather hastily done a little bit secretive and yeah. not well advertised leading to three applicants, only one of which Dyer uh, submitted a very serious application. So, so it's a, a lot of skepticism around that appointment yes. for sure. Um, well, it's a wonderful piece of journalism. Certainly go check it out at the Texan.news folks from Isaiah Mitchell, this piece on the Liberty Institute. We'll keep an eye on that story. And Isaiah, thank you for covering that for us. Oh, thanks. Oh, you're so welcome. Hayden, let's talk about um, illegal immigration. Shocker. You're probably your biggest beat is the border and illegal immigration at this I'd point. I'd say so, yeah. Yeah, it takes up the most, the majority of your time. Um, but let's talk about a lawmaker um, talking about, you know, asking the attorney general for his input, for his, uh, you know, a little bit of, <laughs> a little bit of back and forth here between two um, lawmakers here in Texas. Talk to us about rep what Representative Matt Krause um, had to say about illegal immigration this week. Representative Krause chose a formal venue to make his request of the attorney general's opinion. A lot of the time, politicians and candidates will go back and forth on social media. They'll ask each other questions on forums. But this was a very formal way of asking Attorney General Paxton if he believes the border crisis or illegal immigration constitutes an invasion of our southern border. And his request centers on two constitutional provisions in the U.S. Constitution. Uh, first, uh, the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion and on application of the legislature or of the executive when the legislature cannot be convened against domestic violence, end quote. Then there's another constitutional provision 
that allows states to defend themselves. Uh, this is an Article 1, Section 10. Quote, no state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any duty or tonnage of tonnage, keep troops or ships of war in times of peace, enter into any agreement or compact with another state or with a foreign power or engage in war unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay, end quote. Attorney General Paxton now has the option of issuing an opinion on whether illegal immigration is an invasion. The Arizona Attorney General issued a similar opinion that Representative Krauss said he found compelling. Paxton is being asked to uh, make a similar finding or or uh, express a similar viewpoint. So that's the request that was made. But this happens in the middle of a runoff for both of these men. Representative Krauss originally ran against Paxton for attorney general in the Republican primary, but then dropped that race and is now in a runoff for Tarrant County District Attorney against Judge Phil Sorrells, who has uh, been endorsed by Donald Trump. So Mr. Krauss has a lot of uh, political capital on the line, and it looks like he's seeking to get his views on immigration out there. As far as the timeline for Attorney General Paxton's response, Kraus asked him to expedite his answer, but I'm personally not sure if there's a specific deadline that Paxton has to act. I imagine it would depend on the complexity of the legal issue or his answer, but you can go to the Texan.news. We have the full letter embedded in that article. Uh, about Representative Krause's uh, request of Attorney General Paxton. Very good. What have been some of the points on both sides of this invasion argument? This invasion argument is has been made in the past. Uh, Krauss is not the first one to raise it. It concerns the level of urgency of illegal immigration. Congressman Chip Roy recently called on Governor Abbott to shut down the border. Those were the words he used. Of course, there are those who say that Tactically, that's not really an option because militarily, there are only so many things that can be done and shutting down the border uh, would entail a complicated mission, tactically speaking. And this would be a nuclear option of sorts, calling this an invasion and excluding the federal government from the state's response to illegal immigration, which is, of course, an act- a course of action that Governor Abbott has declined to take thus far. He's still making sure that the state is staying on the right side of U.S. Supreme Court and other federal court rulings. So this would dramatically raise the level of urgency. And those who are in favor of this say that because Texans are being subjected to crime being committed by illegal immigrants and the federal government is relaxing policies that would deter illegal immigration that this response is justified and they point to the number of enforcement encounters which we'll talk about later in this podcast but because there have been and uh, there has been an increase uh, in more than a million uh, illegal immigrants since Biden took office they contend that this is a necessary option of course not uh, you know very small portion of those people are are, uh, criminals other than crossing illegally, but uh, there are those who say that this is necessary, and the counter-argument would be uh, that the state needs to remain in cooperation with the rest of the union, and that this border crisis does not justify such a dramatic escalation of our response in terms of um, rebuffing the federal government's authority. Yeah. Certainly. Complicated issue. Some of it has to do with rhetoric. Other, you know, and part of it is just legality. Very, very interesting to watch that kind of combine here. Thank you, Hayden. 
Daniel, we're going to come to you. A former state senator and gubernatorial candidate, Wendy Davis, filed a new lawsuit against the Texas Heartbeat Act this week. This is somebody who has certainly been very vocal about her pro-choice views in the past, um, you know, well known for her filibuster years ago. What makes this lawsuit different from the others that have been filed against the new law? So Isaiah has done a great job covering a lot of these lawsuits uh, in the past. Uh, His plate was a little bit full this week, so I went ahead and took this for him. Um, But this uh, lawsuit uh, is a little bit different than the other ones that have been filed uh, for a couple different reasons that caught my attention. Um, Just I'll I'll note real quickly that there's two big lawsuits in federal court that have happened. There's been one from the Biden administration that sued Texas directly. And then there's been another one from a bunch of abortion uh, providers, I think, or abortion funds um, that were suing a variety of people, uh, including the attorney general, a state judge, a state clerk, a pro-life activist, and several state agencies. Um, So I'd say the big difference between this new lawsuit and those other two ones, uh, one of the biggest differences is the defendants listed in the case. So unlike the Biden administration, which sued the state of Texas, or uh, the the defendants listed in the other lawsuit, uh, this one really focuses more on private individuals. Uh, There are four individuals who are named in the lawsuit. Uh, Two of them uh, target uh, a person or people who have... Um, actually taken some legal action uh, against abortion funds under SB8. Uh, another person is someone who has made a threat of it. And then the fourth person uh, listed as a defendant is State Representative Briscoe Kane, uh, who had, has sent a cease and desist letter to abortion funds, uh, which uh, his letter is really the second uh, key thing that's different about this lawsuit than the previous one. Uh, whereas those ones just focused more on uh, SB8, the Texas Heartbeat Act itself. Uh, this one also includes uh, some context about a pre-Roe v. Wade law in Texas uh, that Briscoe Kane actually, uh, in his letter, is really was the basis for that. Uh, and that abortion law actually prohibits the furnishing the means to procure abortions. Um, of course, after Roe v. Wade, the state basically just set that aside and stopped enforcing everything together. And now there's been a big push from lawmakers uh, like Representative Kane to say, hey, like there's actually sections of this that we can enforce. Um, So that's something that's a little bit different uh, in this lawsuit. Yeah, like the idea behind that is that uh, Roe v. Wade recognized a right to abortion, but it did not recognize the right to furnish the means to an abortion. So Kane says that he thinks this can still be enforced, but the only reason it's not is because these abortion funds inhabit areas where DAs are ideologically opposed to prosecuting them. Got it. So, So, and this is kind of an aside here, but we've, the means to furnish an abortion, I mean, we've seen cities, like, let's drill down into what that could potentially mean. We've seen cities, I believe the city of Austin, Brad, had for a while a program that would help fund transportation for women Mm -hmm. seeking abortions. Different localities have had programs like that in the past. So this is essentially taking aim at those kinds of programs or ideas. Correct. Yeah, but also even in the private level. Okay, got it. Um, so can mm-hmm. you all explain some more of why such an old law is getting attention in court now? Yeah, so Isaiah kind of explained some of it to quote some from actually uh, Kane's letter, uh, his cease and desist letter that he sent to these abortion funds. Uh, he said, quote, courts do not have the ability or the authority to strike down or formally revoke statutes when pronouncing them unconstitutional. Uh, Kane contended that uh, the severability provisions of Texas law allows the state's pre-row abortion statutes to be enforced in situations that do not violate the constitutional rights of abortion patients. Uh, in essence, that means that the old state law 
quote, remains fully enforceable against abortion funds that pay for abortions performed in Texas, as well as their donors. Uh, so that's actually something that he said himself. That's kind of the argument that he's putting forward. Yeah. Um, he's also said separately that uh, he wants to enact legislation or, or enact legislation next session uh, that to quote ensure that these lawbreakers are prosecuted uh, by authorizing district attorneys from around the state to be able to sue to prosecute crimes when a local district attorney uh, is not willing to do so, uh, which would really you know if if uh, these things are happening in big counties like Travis County or Harris County where you probably have a Democratic district attorney less likely to prosecute such crimes. Uh, that's really what this is focused on. So allowing uh, DAs that are probably more Republican from uh, other parts of the state that are actually pro-life uh, pushing to enforce this uh, pro-life policy. Wow. Um, now, Davis's lawsuit uh, that she sued, uh, it asks the court to have a declaratory judgment against uh, SB8, but he also, she also asks for the court to enter a declaratory judgment that the criminal abortion ban, this this law, this pre-row law, uh, quote, cannot be lawfully enforced because the U.S. Supreme Court held that it was unconstitutional. Uh, so this is being brought back to the courts. We'll see what happens with it. Anything to add, Isaiah? No. Boom. Good tag team, and boys, thank you so much. Um, we'll keep an eye on that for sure. Bradley, let's talk about, speaking of Austin, let's talk about Austin. The Austin area, Travis County, is among the fastest growing parts of Texas in both population and cost of living, as we all around this table know. As property tax appraisals hit mailboxes, talk to us about what the Travis County Appraisal District announced. Uh, yeah, so... I- Quickly before I get into that, I found a um, an update on the EBI program, and it was pushed to May fifth. Okay. So they, while we were talking, they did um, push that. But wow! Um, in terms of property tax appraisals, um, the Travis County Appraisal District said as they were announcing the mailing of appraisal notices out to their. Um, I forget the exact number, but it was a lot of households um, and business businesses, I'm sure. Um, they announced that the average home value in Travis County increased 56% wow. this year, which is massive. Just this year. Yep. And, uh, you know, a month ago or so, I uh, wrote a piece on statewide appraisals increasing and they said the average was across the state was between 20 and 50 percent increase and this is even higher than that so it's a massive massive jump the medium home value in travis county is six hundred and thirty two thousand dollars roughly um which is a lot that is huge yeah i, I compared that to the city of or houston which um has relatively lax zoning laws that it was like 250,000. Yeah. And so Dallas is 310. So Dallas, that's yeah. totally different. It yeah. is, it is obviously a problem and it's um, something that is becoming a massive theme in the mayor's race. There's the affordability, the availability of housing, that kind of thing. So uh, the total, total appraisal role in Travis County rose 43%. Um, the, the total amount of, uh, value property value in the county uh, it rose to 447 billion dollars which is a staggering amount so wow that was the general update there on just the appraisal side what does this mean for taxpayers so while the appraisal increases are startling and they are startling uh, <laughs> that does not mean taxpayers will see a proportional increase in their tax bills um, for homeowners Texas has a 10 percent 
increased cap on the appraisal's taxable value for homesteads. So if you have a homestead exemption, the amount that any of these localities can tax you um, on your appraisal increase, it only goes up 10%. After it can go up to a 10% increase, if it's above that, your actual appraisal. So let's say you are feeling your home is uh, getting the 56% appraisal increase, um, only 10% of that will be taxable for you. So that could still yield a significant jump in what you are paying for your tax bill, um, but it wouldn't be as stark as what you would see if there was none, was no uh, um, appraisal increase cap for homesteads. Now, that is not the case for businesses. So if you have a small business and your property value went up 56%, unless you uh, qualify for other exemptions, you're not, uh, first of all, you're not going to get that 10% increase yeah. cap. And the array of exemptions available to businesses is much lower wow. than um, is available for homesteads. And so, um, but that said, we don't know what tax bills will look like yet because local officials at the various political subdivisions will make the decision on tax rates, usually between August and September. Um, and that determines how much in taxes you will actually pay, how much an increase you will feel. If they don't adopt the no new revenue tax rate or a lower one, then your tax bill will increase. So they can you know, talk about how we reduce the tax rate, we reduce the tax rate over and over, but unless that is uh, the no new revenue rate, you're paying more. Yeah. So just you know, know that. Um, taxpayers have, an, on the appraisal side again, taxpayers have until May 16th to protest their appraisal. Uh, if you don't know how to do that, the Texas Public Policy Foundation has a good explainer on how to protest that. So if you just search that in Google, it should come up. Um, but that's something that can really help reduce the amount that the amount of tax burden you'll feel. Um, but uh, odds are if you go up 56%, you're not going to be able to protest it successfully to drop it under 10. Yeah. So you're still going to pay a 10% increase in your tax bill um, on average. So yeah. there's that. Yep. Wildly expensive to live here in Austin. Yep. Fascinating. Well, thank you, Brad, for um, breaking that down for us. Hayden, we're going to come back to the border. Shocker. Let's talk more about this. We alluded to this earlier, um, but let's talk about how many illegal immigrants were processed under Title 42 in March and when is Title 42 set to end? I just want to say every time we say on the border or back to the border, I just get hungry for chips and salsa every time <laughs> without fail. But uh, we're looking at... Uh, a very probable increase in illegal immigration this summer after Title 42 ends. The most recent report from CBP indicated that there were 221,000 enforcement encounters nationwide or the southwestern U.S. in March, and 129,000 of those were in Texas Border Patrol sectors. The reason these numbers are significant at this point is Title 42, which are the federal laws that allow the federal government to invoke a public health emergency that results in expelling illegal immigrants more quickly. The application of that is going to end on May 23rd due to a directive by the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. There have been estimates reported, and the governor's office indicated this as well, but that there could be up to 18,000 enforcement encounters with illegal aliens daily 
wow. when this policy winds down. And to put the pers- put it in perspective, the number of illegal immigrants who have been uh, processed for deportation under this policy, half of the illegal aliens taken into custody in March were processed under this policy, according to Commissioner Chris Magnus. And I want to read his full quote because it's significant. Quote, CBP continues to enforce the CDC's Title 42 public health order. Half of migrants encountered in March were processed for expulsion under Title 42, and those who were not processed under Title 42 continue to be processed for removal under Title 8, the same authorities CBP has used throughout our history, end quote. And he mentioned Title 8 because those are the regular immigration laws of the U.S. government, which will go in back into full effect. Well, they're still in effect, excuse me. They are in effect, but Title 40 people who might have otherwise been processed under Title 42 will now be processed under Title 8. And I say processed because that's that's the word that the, the feds use. They're uh, they are taken into custody and then they are uh, they are consulted and and they are the enforcement encounter follows the guidelines in in those federal laws so th- that is the proportion of people who are taken care of under title 42 that program is set to end on may 23rd wow so talk to us about how enforcement encounters in march compare to previous months and when was the last time there were this many enfor- in, in, you know encounters specifically focusing on texas sectors there was a 32% increase in apprehensions from February to March. February had about 97,000 and last month had 129,000. There haven't been this many enforcement encounters since August of last year. And Title 42 isn't even over yet. So we're looking at an increase of nearly a third in apprehensions in Texas sectors from February to March. And April's almost over, but it's seems to be taking longer and longer for CBP to come out with uh, the numbers. I don't know if that's just a feeling I have or if they really are taking longer every month. But uh, nationwide, there have been so far this fiscal year, 1.2 million encounters with illegal aliens and unaccompanied children. And again, we haven't even started yet on the post-Title 42 atmosphere. I want to remind listeners of what happened in Del Rio Valverde County, when the federal government instituted a policy that would grant temporary protected status to Haitian illegal aliens who were here prior to a certain date last summer. And there was confusion reported around that policy. And uh, what ultimately happened was a rush of about 30,000 illegal crossings in Valverde County in a compact period of time. Uh, And deportations to Haiti commenced after a brief pause. The federal government really was forced to reinstate those deportations. So Commissioner Magnus, a Biden administration official, has stated that very likely there will be a spike in illegal crossings and they are surging resources to the border to hopefully be able to respond to that. Wow. Well, thank you for breaking that down for us. Real fast, um, Title 42 Let's go back and just like a, give a 30-second little spiel of what Title, Title 42 is. President Trump originally invoked Title 42 at the beginning of the pandemic to keep to reduce the spread of COVID-19. It's a federal law that when there is a disease that can be spread 
uh, through, uh, I guess, transmission, you know, transmission yeah, disease, yeah. then the border can be shut down to uh, people who are not legally authorized to be here. Got it. So it was a, a piece of code invoked specifically Correct. for COVID-19. Well, thank you, Hayden, for that. We're going to stick with you here and talk about Dallas County drama. Talk to us about how much Dallas County taxpayers will spend on Judge Jenkins' lawsuit against Governor Abbott. A small sum of a quarter of a million dollars. <laughs> could be a good down payment on a house yeah. in Austin. <laughs> uh, emphasis on down payment. Yeah. I don't think you, you might be able to buy a tent in Austin for a quarter of a hey, million dollars. Look at that. I, it'd be a fancy tent, but a uh, tent nonetheless. A yurt, uh, maybe. Yeah, yeah a yurt. Um, $250,000 was earmarked uh, by the commissioner's court this week of, to pay the legal fees of Judge Jenkins' lawsuit against Governor Greg Abbott. And this, y'all, this drama started uh, a long time ago, and it it has it ended in a, a quarrel between Jenkins and Abbott. But it started with Jenkins kicking Commissioner J.J. Koch out of a commissioner's court meeting because he wasn't wearing a face covering, and Jenkins had said that if you wanted to be in the commissioner's courtroom, you had to have a a face covering. This appropriation of a quarter of a million dollars was not plan A for Jenkins to pay for his lawsuit. It was originally going to be paid for with COVID-19 relief donations from a charity called Community Foundations of Texas. There was a public outcry. I say public outcry. There was pushback from Jenkins' political opponents. Um, you know, Lauren Davis, who is his opponent in the GOP primary, uh, told us that she believed it, it reflected on his leadership and that it was one more reason he should go. I did reach out to Jenkins when we originally reported on this. His campaign and his office did not get back with me. But Jenkins changed course. And what's interesting is the original motion to spend the COVID-19 donations was drafted by his office. But this motion was drafted, I think, by the county administrator, and it was it was different. It was a different uh, originating agency that, that drafted this motion. But Jenkins and Commissioner Koch recused themselves from this vote. And interestingly enough, Commissioner John Wiley Price, who has also gone to bat with Jenkins throughout the COVID nineteen pandemic, took his side on this. The three remaining commissioners who. I say remaining commissioners, Jenkins recused himself and Koch recused himself. So there were three commissioners in the room and they unanimously supported this despite prices uh, battling with Jenkins in the past. Yeah, certainly. So how did this lawsuit begin and why did Commissioner Koch recuse himself while commissioners were considering this plan? Well, I sort of gave that away a little bit, yeah. <laughs> um, but the, uh, of course, it started with uh, the dispute over the masks, but they've also d- uh, argued over the vaccination strategy and the big justification for spending county funds on this was the fact that there was some kind of public interest in this. But yeah. what was interesting is right before the vote, Commissioner Price called this a personal dispute. Those were his words between Koch and Jenkins. So while the commissioner's court stated that this lawsuit between Jenkins and Abbott, which challenged Abbott's prohibition on local mask mandates, that this was a public interest and that this lawsuit, which is now pending in the Texas Supreme Court, is... uh, 
has implications for public health and other issues of local control versus state control during a disaster. Commissioner Price did call this a personal dispute, and I don't think anybody uh, disagrees that this did begin with uh, Koch and Jenkins going at it over uh, the the some of the what Koch would consider more onerous COVID-19 protocols of the county judge, which Dallas County was one of the first counties to institute a stay at home order. So a long, you know, we've got the federal mask mandate ending. We have Title 42 ending. The pandemic <laughs> is officially coming to a close. And yet we still have these ancillary legal issues drawing out past the end of the pandemic um, and these disputes between local officials. Yeah. Well, Clay Jenkins' name ID skyrocketed during the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly as he went to bat against the governor on a lot of these kinds of issues, particularly related to the response to the pandemic. Fast Fascinating stuff and interesting to watch it still be in the news two years later. Um, Daniel, we're going to pivot back to you. Um, uh, one of your beats tends to be fundraising numbers and combing through quarterly reports. We have another that came out this week uh, or, or last week, rather. Uh, who were the big fundraisers this time? Yes, right before Easter, uh, federal candidates for office had to file their quarterly reports. So this covers, uh, well, actually, this period for most congressional candidates actually covered from about February to the end of March. Uh, they had filed a pre-primary report for the people who are in primary elections, which is all House candidates. Uh, Senate candidates had to file ones for, for the entire quarter from January to March. Um, now, that said, whenever we do a report on federal candidates fundraising, uh, there's always two names that we see at the top consistently over and over again, at least uh, in the past several years that I've been here. Um, and that would be uh, Senator Ted Cruz and Representative Dan Crenshaw. Uh, these are two of Texas' superstar fundraisers. And once again, they were both at the top of the list um, with over $1 million. Uh, Dan Crenshaw raised a total of $1.9 million for the quarter and Cruz raised uh, $1.5 million, uh, which is notable because he's not even on the ballot. Crenshaw is, of course, but Cruz not on the ballot this year. Uh, so those are some some big numbers for them this uh, first three months of the year. But the notable thing about the fundraising numbers this year, or this quarter rather, uh, was that there was someone who topped them both, and it was a Democrat who's not even an incumbent. Uh, Jessica Cisneros reported raising $2.4 million for the entire quarter. Uh, so uh, she's challenging Representative Henry Cuellar, and that was quite a big haul. Yeah. What are some of the reasons? What's the root of Cisneros' for, you know, support in this way? Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the things that I would uh, pin it on, of course, there's no way to actually know exactly everything that goes into fundraising, but uh, some of the broad things that we see, uh, she has the support of national progressives uh, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, she's in a very competitive race with uh, Representative Henry Cuellar, who's seen as one of the more moderate members in the Democratic caucus. Um, and so... He, He's also had some, uh, there was an FBI raid on his house and he's been uh, connected with that in some ways. Now his his name actually hasn't been brought up as uh, being tied to the, or like as a part of the scandal, just somehow connected to something that the FBI is investigating. Not a lot of details on that. Uh, but Cisneros also ran in 2020 against Cuellar uh, and ran a very close race that time. And so once again, it's been very close. They're now in a runoff. Um, so I'm sure all those variables put together, uh, she's just a candidate that has a lot of support, uh, especially outside of Texas. It's not just 
you know, there's, uh, I think she raised a few hundred thousand dollars in Texas, but a lot of this money has come from outside of Texas, uh, which is also very interesting. Yeah. Um, um, so those are just some of the reasons that I, I would uh, suspect why she's such been such a big fundraiser this cycle. Yeah. Lots of heavy hitters. Um, so who are some of the other big fundraisers? Yeah, real quick. Um, of course, you always have some who are kind of newer to the the scene who have just raised a lot of money. We have that right now with uh, representative or not representative uh, Wesley Hunt, who is a the GOP nominee for uh, Texas's thirty eighth congressional district, which is a new district in Houston. Uh, he also ran last time against Lizzie Fletcher and was a, a big name, and so uh, he's walked away with one point three million dollars for this quarter raised. Uh, you have Representative Jake Elzey, who's a new congressman in the 6th Congressional District, won a special election last year. Uh, he raised close to a million, 944,000. Um, then, of course, Cuellar also uh, running for re-election against Cisneros raised uh, a big sum, uh, almost not quite 800,000. So that's still a third of what Cisneros raised, but also among the top uh, among uh, candidates in Texas. Uh, and other big names are two Republican candidates, uh, Morgan Luttrell, the GOP nominee for the 8th Congressional District, and Monica De La Cruz, who's the uh, nominee for the 15th Congressional District. Uh, they also both raised over $700,000. Wow. Lots of, lots, of, lots of big money happening here. Um, Brad, are you watching sports? I am. Oh, my Miguel gosh. Miguel Cabrera is <laughs> wow. almost, uh, he was up to bat. And he's chasing his 3,000th hit. So I'm sitting here oh, trying to smoothly transition from one portion of this podcast to another. And Brad's arms just go flying in the air. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like flying in yeah, the air. He flew out to right field. So ridiculous. Yeah, you really hit a home run with that transition. Oh my so. gosh. Damn, friend. <laughs> also, I do want to give a shout out. Every week on this podcast, it is freezing cold in the podcast room. I have this blanket that was sent to us by one of our readers, Joe Hootman. And I just want to say thank you. I use it every week. And oftentimes every day on, you know, just at the office. I'm it's always basically cold. your blanket. Yeah. He's sent it to the whole team. This is a very loyal uh, listener and reader. And I have completely commandeered it and use it all the time. It has a special drawer in my desk where it stays. And I pull it out and use it as much as I need, which is pretty much every day. I even have a heater in my office. And sometimes I have a heater and the blanket, you know, you, you use like it at the same time. On the, on the drawer, like a nameplate that just says. Yes. Like, the commemorative Hoopman drawers. <laughs> I totally should. The Joe Hoopman memorial drawer. But I've thought about um, shouting you out many times on this podcast, Joe. And so now I'm finally remembering mid podcast. But thank you so much. You um, ensure that I stay warm, which is very helpful in an office full of these boys who would rather it be um, an ice box in here. So I appreciate it. Bradley, um, if we aren't interrupting your sports watching, Oh, no, it's between innings. So. Okay, perfect. Perfect timing. Let's talk about the House District 73 debate that you and I went to earlier this week. Talk to us a little bit about the drama that went on there. So it was a really interesting time. Um, it was like <laughs> 300 to 400 people at this town yeah, hall. It was it's, a lot. Um, the GOP runoff for HD 73, which is an open seat. Um, the two candidates are former New Braunfels Mayor Baron Castile and... Carrie Isaac, who was a candidate for HD 45 in 2020, her husband Jason is um, a former state rep in. He was state rep in HD 45. Um, What was that like? Six, seven years ago now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Four, four, four or five. Yeah. yeah. Um, And so it was. It's been a pretty contentious race. Uh, The two candidates are um, both pretty 
formidable in the district Mm -hmm. and it was very tight in the primary. So, um, I wrote a piece about what they discuss, their policy positions. Um, they each have gotten some high profile endorsements. Castile boasts Abbott's endorsement, Governor Abbott, and Carrie Isaac has been endorsed by Senator Ted Cruz. Yeah, one of those examples we've talked about previously on the pod yeah, of yeah. the governor and um, Texas junior senator kind of uh, splitting ways yep. on their endorsements this cycle. Yep. So, um, you know, they talked property taxes, they talked school choice, they talked. Um, Democratic chairman in the Texas House. They talked to speaker. So um, if you want to critical race theory, critical race theory, um, gender education, all that stuff. Um, So if you want to, uh, if you're interested in that, that race, I'd recommend you give it a read. Uh, It's got a lot in there. But um, yeah, it's certainly going to be one of the races to watch in on the runoff um, on May 24th. Certainly. Thank you, Bradley. Speaking of campaigns, Isaiah, let's talk to you. Um, the primary elections for Lane Commissioner for both parties went to a runoff, meaning that uh, two candidates for each party are now vying for their party's nomination. Are there clear front, front runners? Yes. Um, there already were. It was an interesting race. It's the only open statewide seat in Texas right now. And the Republican side started with, I want to say, eight candidates and the Democrats with four. And as you said, they narrowed down to two now, the top two from uh, from the run or the primary. And uh, on the Republican side, it's it's pretty clear. Um, you've got Don Buckingham, a current state senator, going against uh, Tim Wesley, an educator and veteran, and uh, Alan West, when he was chair of the Texas GOP, appointed him to be party historian. So that's kind of his foray into politics. And um, Buckingham is a pretty obvious front runner for for the runoff. She already. Um, before the primary, she had raised more money than any other candidate in either primary, in either party. And uh, since then, she's added a lot of new endorsements to a collection that had already kind of established her as the party favorite for a lot of big Republicans, like both you know Ted Cruz and John Cornyn, yeah. Donald Trump, Rick Perry, former land commissioner Jerry Patterson. And uh, but what's interesting is that now she's got the endorsements of most of her primary competitors, so Weston Martinez, Ben Armina. Victor Avila, Don Minton, and Rufus Lopez have all sided with Buckingham after failing to make the runoff, which yeah. is interesting because um, several of those guys had positioned themselves as uh, some of them explicitly as, as grassroots type candidates and others as at the least political outsiders, um, some of whom criticized Buckingham as being you know, the establishment pick, right? Right. And uh, now they've all, they've all backed her. Wesley, meanwhile, um, he's kind of spun his more modest fundraising into an underdog reputation, that kind of image Yeah, um, as a political outsider. Uh, his biggest endorsement is probably Alan West, who again a- appointed him as a kind of a top brass spot in the Texas GOP. But um, in fundraising and endorsements and the initial primary results, vote counts, um, Buckingham is kind of the clear front runner of the Republican side. So she led Wesley 42 to, I want to say 15% on uh, March 1st, election night. Big so, margin. Yeah. It's a little bit more complicated on the Democrat side. Not not that much. Uh, Jay Kleberg is definitely the party favorite. He has got all the major endorsements. Uh, before March 1st, it was a little bit split between him and Ginny Sue, with Kleberg being a little bit more of the moderate side and, and Sue being the more progressive side uh, in terms of their endorsements and the politicians that endorse him and, and their stances, you know, that led to those endorsements. Yeah. Uh, Sue did not make the runoff. Sandra Grace Martinez won the runoff. 
This is um, your favorite story in politics right now. It's a, it's a funny story, yeah, because <laughs> uh, Martinez had such such low fundraising numbers, like $42 cash on hand in the last pre-primary uh, election report. And Kleberg um, grew up on the King Ranch, and he is second only to Buckingham for both parties for, for fundraise. So he's, he's got all kinds of money and uh, has been running a, a solid campaign and everything. And um, he had conservation experience and all that. And uh, Sandra Grace Martinez um, has just been quite an underdog yes. <laughs> in this race, um, especially by by winning by winning the primary. But you know, you're shy fifty percent, so that goes to the runoff. Um, so I have not seen so far uh, endorse. I, I was kind of like trolling through these endorsements for the candidates that had been, like, like I said, Sue got a lot of them, a lot of the big names, and especially in the Texas House. And I haven't seen them jump to Kleberg yet. I might be missing one. Um, so we don't see that same phenomenon on the Democrat side as we do on the Republican side. But nonetheless, in terms of fundraising, Kleberg's got a huge advantage. Um, but uh, polling has shown, polling has sided with Martinez so far. It's kind of sparse. It's not like for these bigger races where we, we get polls like every week, like we were getting for the governor, you know, all right. the time. It seemed like, oh, every day there's a new poll for the governor. Yeah. Well, this one we've got, you know, about one or two, and they tend to favor Martinez, uh, which is interesting. So, you know, in that respect, uh, I'm, if I'm sounding hesitant, it's because like election day is always full of surprises. Yes. And uh, especially, I'm certain, uh, for our readers and listeners, people are very conscious of media making these very confident guesses on what's going to happen on election day yeah. and then being totally wrong. And so there's always room for surprises on election day, but Kleberg and Buckingham in terms of reputation are the party favorites for these respective runoffs. That's so, a good way to phrase it. Yeah. And certainly something we want to stay away from is just for, you know, we want to present the facts, tell people what's going on, who's endorsed who, and then leave it up to the listener to figure yeah, out what's yeah. going on. Very good. Well, thank you, Isaiah. Gentlemen, we are going to go ahead and go to our Twitter fun section here and start talking through some notable things we've found on Twitter this week. Daniel, I want to start with you. What have you found that caught your eye? I was scrolling through Twitter <laughs> so long this morning trying to find something to fit this segment that I found interesting. It, it's so hard to find anything interesting on Twitter. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> Um, I feel like it's not unless you're looking. If you're actively maybe, looking for something, you can't find anything. Yeah. But just scrolling daily, you're like, dang, there's so much just, I don't know. Like 90% of the stuff is just Ooh. not that interesting. It's just people having their own opinions. There's just a lot of fluff on Twitter, <laughs> which is good. And even this, what I did find is a little bit fluffy, but I found it interesting. Let's do it. Uh, Representative Terry Canales tweeted this morning um, that 134 years ago today, that would be um, April 21st, uh, which is also the same, the anniversary of the San Jacinto battle, which is fascinating. But on the same day, 134 years ago, the Texas Capitol was first opened to the public. Wow. He said uh, the third building to serve that purpose for our state. Uh, he said that the construction of the Capitol was actually funded by an article of the state constitution. And one of these other things that was just really fascinating to me was that uh, he says, in one of the largest tra barter transactions of recorded history, the builders of the Capitol, John V. Farwell and Charles B. Farwell, paid were paid with more than three million of acres of land in the Texas Panhandle. So Pretty that is just fascinating that the Capitol was paid for 
by some land in the panhandle. Wow. <laughs> uh, and he said that the tract later became the largest cattle ranch in the world. So just fascinating. Wow. That's super fun. I like that little Texas history angle. That's really fun. Um, thank you, Representative Terry Canales, for tweeting out that fun fact. Isaiah, what about you? What do you have for us today? I am uh, dropping the rivalry with me and Holly. <laughs> and I'm picking a Holly tweet. I this love time. it. Um, the rivalry about whose article is trending most dude, on the website. Yeah, don't even get me started. It's not even rivalry. fair. She's <laughs> living in Harris County where there's a million bajillion go- fulfilling people. And she's got <laughs> equally as many Twitter followers. She puts anything. Anyway. <laughs> but, um, Isaiah, I don't know. Your Twitter, fo- your Twitter followers almost compare to her like 7,000. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for that tone of voice. But uh, now we're, we're friends for the, for the next two minutes. And um, so Holly, uh, <laughs> she's just what I was saying in other news. Funny, I was excoriated for referring to this judge as a socialist. And the article that she includes, it's a picture of it. It's from the Houston Chronicle. Uh, and the headline that's included in the picture says, Harris DA's office wants to suspend a self-described socialist judge accused of such and such behavior. And um, so as a throwback, uh, she wrote this article in March of 2020 that uh, led with socialist judges, officials in Harris County in the headline. That's how the headline began. Yeah. And uh, evidently she took some flack for that. Um, so I, I wasn't, I wasn't there actually at the company during this time. So yeah. I'm not that familiar on, on what went on. Oh, I remember that. You remember? You want to summarize if you can, I mean, oh, if you um, remember, if you remember vividly I mean, enough, if I remember correctly, they described themselves as socialists and Holly put that in the, the title. Self-described yeah. or something like that, and uh, yeah, it's just got the typical projection, yeah. you know, like from people like I like this politician. This politician must believe everything I believe, and then when that's refuted, it's like yeah, that's wrong. Yeah, but um, well, it's also interesting to watch these folks, these progressive folks, um, which Republicans do the same thing on different issues, but shy away from a title that they don't like if they feel like they're being criticized for it, but then also fully embrace it when it is politically expedient for them. And it's like a, if it's a primary, if it's a combination of who can be the most or the competition of who can be the most progressive. It's interesting to watch. A amphibious. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, um, yes. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you and Holly could temporarily bury the hatchet. That's very good. Good stuff. Okay, Hayden, what do you got for us? Well, I'm, you know, second guessing my choice of tweet. As Daniel said, it's hard to peruse uh, the internet and find <laughs> something interesting to talk about. You guys put so much pressure on yourselves to choose great tweets for the segment. It's like, no, guys, this is just something that caught your eye this week. Okay, well, this did catch my eye. Perfect. So, um, a reporter tweeted an article she had written about a large uh, denominational, pardon me, non-denominational church <laughs> with multiple campuses and in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, and the reporter tweeted with the article that she had written, he asked at Bible study if Black Lives Matter. Then he says, insert name of the church, kicked him out. And this article's framing was interesting because the grammatical construction of this headline and tweet, it capitalized Black Lives Matter and which would make it refer to the the organization and the protest of the Black Lives Matter movement as opposed to the sentiment right. of Black Lives Matter, which... It's like a discrete Exactly, yeah. which no thinking or 
you know, moral person would disagree that Black Lives Matter. But the debate is not about that. The debate is, is this organization and the political views and proposals that it espouses. Um, is that a legitimate way of addressing racism? And is is racism a problem to the extent that this movement says? And the framing of this story is that uh, this churchgoer was kicked out of his church for uh, stating that that Black Lives Matter. And and if you read the piece, and um, it's uh, definitely one of those pieces where you feel like you're not getting the full picture. Yeah. If you read the piece, it is he was trespassed from the property of this church. Uh, it very much seems like he was uh, using the church as a facility for protesting, uh, which is of course not uh, the purpose of a of a religious uh, organization. And you know, and I, I'm pretty pretty sure any lawyer would probably tell you that uh, churches have the right to discipline their members and to choose who joins them. Um, but I think it's it's one of those framings that cause people to second guess their media consumption. And uh, it's one of the it's the type of thing that inspires us here to frame things as fairly as possible to yeah, both sides. Absolutely. Both as sides, fairly and fully me. as possible. Absolutely. Very good, Hayden. Bradley, what do you got for us? So, in another... Is it baseball related? It is not. I wish it was. I wish I was able to say, yes, Miguel Cabrera just got his 3,000th hit, which is a massive milestone for anyone that doesn't know baseball. I was going to say, after I uh, called Brad out for his little arm pump, he messaged me and said, 3,000 hits is a big deal, just FYI. It is. I was like, I'm not disputing that. I'm just making fun of you for getting (laughs) so excited during our podcast recording. Um, Yeah, I remember when I hit my 3,000th hit it was a pretty big deal. Wow. Daniel, I'm really excited to hear that. Congratulations. <laughs> um, so another Central Texas race that has the same Abbott v. Cruz dynamic that we talked about in 73 yeah. is HG19, which has been a very public um, contentious race, mm-hmm. very publicly contentious, especially on the Twitters, which makes it good follow or fodder for this segment, I suppose. <laughs> Brad um, is salivating at the thought. Ellen Trax-Claire, former Austin City Councilman, is running against Justin Berry, an Austin police officer. These two were famously uh, kind of a ticket when Trax-Claire was running for Senate and Berry was running for the HD 47 house seat. They both have since after redistricting jumped into the 19 seat, and it's been a, been a very public falling out between the two. Yeah. Um, but the tweet that caught my eye with this week was, um, the Travis County GOP, which has supported both of them in the past. Um, they're kind of, you know, being pulled both ways and they're not taking a side. And that was their tweet. They said to be clear, TCRP is not endorsed in the HG 19 race between Ellen and Justin. And, that came out. It was not out of the blue. There was a um, a resolution that was passed at their meeting this week that, among other things like condemning the UBI thing that Austin wanted to pass, uh, it put out a resolution that um, basically condemned the Protect and Serve Texas PAC, which is a PAC that has been supporting Barry. Uh, has been releasing a lot of claims about Trax Claire's record while on the Austin City Council. Basically, yeah. I mean, it's not like one of these, it's not explicitly tied to one of these It's not like a police association or anything, yeah. But um, they put out things like um, uh, criticizing Trax Claire for voting against the um, 
in uh, I think it was 2017, the first um, the first version of the police Austin police uh, labor agreement. And she did vote against that. And then she voted for the final one um, that was a lower pay resulted in a lower pay raise, but still made the police, uh, the Austin police at the time, the highest paid in the state. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of nuances to this, that attack, as there are with many of these kinds of things. You know, the kernel of truth here uh, stretched into um, a broadside against the the opponents. But the Travis County GOP put out a, a, a re- they passed a resolution at their meeting this week condemning the protect and serve Texas PAC. Um, from what I've been told, uh, it was uh, Don Zimmerman, another former city councilman who brought it to the, the meeting and they went through their typical procedure that they do and, and passed it. Zimmerman, of course, was, um, he ran against Barry in the uh, HD 47 GOP primary. Yeah, Barry beat him by one vote. Oh, really. I forgot one about vote. that. One vote. Yep. And it, oh at my first, gosh. Barry was losing by one vote, I believe, at the end of the primary night. Then they did a recount, and Barry ended up winning by one vote. I forgot. <laughs> and so then he went to the, the runoff against uh, Jennifer Fleck, who won the primary by a wide margin. And if I remember correctly, shellacked her in the, in the runoff. And so he won the GOP nomination, didn't win the race against or didn't win the general um and so now he's running in this other seat but it's interesting seeing the uh travis county gop um they're chaired by matt mccoviak consultant um who's been big on the especially homelessness issue you know there have been multiple over the last couple years multiple um uh press conferences that McCoviak has had with his um, Save Austin Now group that has included Barry and Troxclair um, when they announced their uh, the Austin police refunding petition. Um, Barry and Troxclair were standing right next to each other uh, supporting this. And so it's just this this race is in addition to being very intense and at times vitriolic, um, you know, it's kind of dividing a household interestingly enough just um you know this travis county gop has never had to at least between these two hasn't had to pick a side and they're not they're trying their best not to but um it's interesting seeing all these different players jump into this and you know the zimmerman cameo was not something that i envisioned but Certainly, but interesting nonetheless. Jinx. (laughs) Very good. Okay, gentlemen, we're going to end the pod um, on this question that Hayden came up with, actually. Credit to Hayden. It's good stuff. But now that the mask mandate has officially been lifted in terms of air travel this week, um, all those videos on Twitter of people cheering on planes and those selfies like cracked me up. I thought it was so funny. Um, But now that that's been lifted, let's talk about the best and worst parts of air travel. What do you enjoy about it? What do you hate about it? For me personally, I just love going to an airport. I just love being at an airport. I always get there way early. I like sitting at my gate. I like pulling up my computer doing work, grabbing a coffee, maybe some tacos because it's the Austin airport and you can get plenty of tacos or an old fashioned. That's very true. If it's like an evening flight, I do like an old fashioned. Um, But... That's why I just like airports and hanging out in them and watching the hustle and bustle and speed walking through acting like I have important places to be, which, you know, if you're going somewhere, you do have important places to be. That's what I like. I just like the whole feeling of airports. No, I, I, I agree that I, I it, it's, it is fun to get there, you know, and kind of enjoy the, the atmosphere of the airport. Uh, but 
this past weekend, I flew for the first time since the pandemic started. And I forgot all of the, you know, small things about air travel that, you know, maybe are are not as fun, including being packed like sardines into the plane <laughs> when you're trying to get in and out. Um, but another thing, when I was flying out of the Tyler airport, uh, I told Isaiah this the other day. The Tyler Airport's very small, so it was basically me and my family was there to drop me off. And in the lobby of the airport, they had the show Air Crash Investigation outside of the TSA (laughs) checkpoint. Like, whose choice was this? That what a wonderful idea. Let's put on air crash investigations. It'll really relieve everybody's nervousness. (laughs) So, you know, uh air travel is usually fun. Hanging out at the airport is fun, but uh not when they choose a tv show like air crash investigations not particularly encouraging yeah. Pretty funny. yeah of the, all the shows that's pretty awful i say the worst part of traveling is uh, i'm saying this now because y'all know i will forget if i don't just say it um being really tall mm. and being in, in the middle seat yeah that's no good my knee i swear i'm like an 80 year old's knee it i mean I, I was even at a concert last night and sitting in the seat my knee just like tenses up and like tightens and really hurts after a while mm. My left knee. I don't know what. Only the left knee. Only the left knee. (laughs) Sitting in the middle is just the worst, regardless of how tall you are. And so I can't imagine how much it sucks. The suckitude of being... six feet tall and sitting in the middle. I mean, having shorter With, uh, legs, though, does does help. Like, I feel like I was sitting in the airline seat thinking, you know, if I had, you know, longer legs, which I have extremely short legs. Uh, and so if I was sitting in a, in a seat and I had longer legs, it would be it would be harder to, uh, you know, get comfortable, especially yeah. when you've got when you're when you've got people in the seat next to you. Yeah, but it's uncomfy regardless. And I've been told I resemble one of those like um, inflatable balloon dudes that the are outside dancers. like car dealerships. Yeah. Like I've been told that my limbs resemble that. So it's really painful. It hurts. It's really painful. It, <laughs> no, not the resemblance, but the um, just generally the sitting in the middle pain. seats. Yes, Wouldn't it's that, okay. painful. And also apply to the window seat i mean there's no stretching out there either there but i can angle myself better in that way in a middle seat if you angle either way you're toward a person Mm -hmm. but i can angle myself more readily in a window seat an aisle seat can also be good but i also feel really bad if my knee is in the middle of the aisle which it usually is because i'm just really long but i I really don't like it it makes me Mm -hmm. sad for the people who have to walk by me I always choose an aisle or at least i try to i would rather sit at the back of the plane in an aisle seat than in a middle or a window seat because i just i get i get claustrophobic when um if i feel hemmed in so i like to (laughs) like to have that aisle seat that's why i like southwest because you know you can can pick you can pick you know right then but on um american airlines or what are what airline do you usually fly when you it's usually it's american or southwest okay yeah just because i think it's texas those are kind of the two that are readily yeah i have the most options i usually fly to phoenix to my family a lot and so you know. That is in the Southwest. Correct. Yes. You're exactly right. It's a big hub for Southwest. It's really, it's more Southwest than Dallas, which is where Southwest is. Yeah. And Americans mm. in Dallas too. Yeah. Anyways, what about you boys? Daniel, Isaiah, Bradley? Um, I abhor. Oh, go ahead, Daniel. I abhor flying with a passion. Like just in general. <laughs> yes. yes. Oh. Not, not flying. Like I like flying. If I, if I could just fly my own plane, that would be cool. But, <laughs> The fact that I have to go to an airport, wait in line at security, something will inevitably go wrong. There will be delays. Not if you get there you really to, early. No, you cannot control 
the plane schedule. Like you get there early. Exactly, like, which is why you, you can get there, there early and you get, can get through security fine. Like you can control your own schedule, but you cannot control the schedule of the plane. Something will go wrong. There'll be an emergency landing. Someone will have a heart attack on the oh plane. My There'll gosh. be weather. Has the, this happened to you? It's happened. Yes, it has happened. And all of that I, at once. I hate it. <laughs> so just like if I cannot fly, like I don't mask or no mask. I would rather drive. I will. I will drive twenty hours rather than take a flight. What if, if I your can. car breaks down in the desert? At least I can be in control of fixing it. Can well, I don't have to. I don't have to wait on some maintenance person. I, to, I, to I, I totally understand what you're coming. But yeah. I feel like well, that's manufactured it, control. Like you aren't actually in control. You just feel as though you are. If, oh, if that does happen, if you do break down the desert, you can just <laughs> find transportation with the horse that, with no name. Yeah, I've been through the desert. Brad's <laughs> smug smirk right now is absolutely just making me itch. I hate it. I hate it so you know, much. They're, they're, Ain't no one I to under, give you no name. I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> There's rocks and things. Okay, this is ridiculous. I see we're bringing back the Mac and Brad fighting segment. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, any other thoughts, gentlemen? Um, I I enjoy sitting in the airport, and it's just a different scene, you know. Yeah. Um, I don't like how expensive everything is because you're a captive audience. Yeah. Um. The thing I don't like the most is getting stuck in the middle seat, but getting stuck in the middle seat next to people that are very inconsiderate about the fact that you are the one in purgatory in the, <laughs> the middle seat. And I was flying to Boston one time and this guy is I was with my one buddy and then I was next to a rando and he's sitting there. He wasn't even that big. He's just, he's like my size, but he's sitting there with his arms out, um, I mean, you can't see it on if you're just listening, but he's sitting there with his arms out all the way into my side. And so I'm sitting there like contorting myself. <laughs> he's currently like I'm trying going through a seizure to recreate. And this. I have to sit there for, you know, the two and a half hour flight that is to Boston. It was just, you're like a Tetris puzzle piece yeah. between these. <laughs> yeah. It was miserable. I'm really so sorry. That would be, that would probably be it. Oh, actually another one, uh, stewardesses that are just unreasonable. Wait a minute. I thought we began this segment with things we like about flying. Yeah, it, but here, I think we're just a negative <laughs> Nelly group. I think we just yeah. turned oh, toward sucks, the negative. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, just. Well, I, well I, I started out positive. I love airports. Okay, I, I, I agree positive with thing. you on Southwest, the and I, I, shout out to Southwest, okay, because they're just awesome. But <laughs> um, their, their pilots and their, their flight attendants usually have a sense of humor, and they're usually pretty jovial with the passengers um i also love the free checked bag that is so nice oh Even yeah if i just have a carry-on i like to check it just so you don't have to wheel it around the airport. yeah so you don't have to lug it around the airport yeah. especially if you have a layover at dfw which is because dfw you have to take the skylink to it's like mm-hmm. a, a train yeah. or or a, a tram i guess to other uh it's other so nice terminals not to have a carry-on in dfw absolutely it's so nice i flew through atlanta for the first time like four or five months ago i didn't hate it it was just massive yeah i've never seen anything like it yeah i was not a big fan of the um atlanta airport for that reason it was Mm -hmm. just a lot going on not a fan Hmm. um isaiah any thoughts i haven't really flown much yeah um positive thing is it's pretty cool to look at the ground yeah when you're by the window that's so true i love that the views are really fun maybe not coming into um um, like the Dallas area, like there isn't always a great view coming into the Dallas area, but Austin's really fun. Yeah. 
Who knows? There's not a, a huge, beautiful river going through yeah. the Dallas area. There's pretty much just. Well, not, it isn't I like mean, the Colorado. It's not the Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally different. I like putting on um like rap and walking with purpose through the airport. Walking with purpose. Yeah. Through like the airport. That. Just speedily, mm. like Kendrick Lamar in my ears, just blasting. Mm. Like you're late for a United Nations conference. 100%. Oh, and uh, that my um, soundtrack would be Kendrick Lamar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a little weird. <laughs> yeah. Okay. On that note, folks, thank you so much for listening. We are so glad you join us every week. And we will catch you next week with all sorts of new topics and potentially new odd things that we will share. Right, boys? There will be nothing new. (laughs) (laughs) The news stops, apparently. Except for Miguel Cabrera hitting his 3,000th hit. Got it. We should check in on that next week. Well, if it doesn't happen by then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll check in. I'll be in a bad mood. Folks, thanks for listening. We will catch you next week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you've been enjoying our podcast, it would be awesome if you would review us on iTunes. And if there's a guest you'd love to hear on our show, give us a shout on Twitter. Tweet at the Texan News. We're so proud to have you standing with us as we seek to provide real journalism in an age of disinformation. We're paid for exclusively by readers like you, so it's important we all do our part to support the Texan by subscribing and telling your friends about us. God bless you, and God bless Texas.